out west, there was a cowboy who was driving down a dirt road. His dog was riding in the back of his pickup truck and his faithful horse and the trailer behind. And as he was driving, he failed to negotiate a curve and he had this terrible accident. Well, sometime later, a highway patrol officer arrived on the scene. And as an animal lover, he saw the horse first. Realizing the serious nature of that horse's injuries and feeling a sense of compassion for the horse, he drew his service revolver and put the animal out of its misery right there on the spot. The patrol officer then walked around the accident site and he found the dog who was hurt critically on the side. He couldn't bear to hear it whine in its pain and so he, he, he ended the dog suffering as well right there on the spot. Finally, he located the cowboy who suffered multiple fractures, groaning and lying on the ground off in the weeds. Hey, are you okay? The officer asked. The cowboy took a look at the smoking revolver in the trooper's hand and quickly replied, I've never felt better. I've never felt better. Perception of a situation can quickly change our reaction. We may not be able to control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. You know, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of stuff just going on in the world that can be downright maddening and frustrating at times. Well, a healthy perception of it is critical to keeping our head in it. A question on my mind this morning is, what is the God that you believe in? What is the God that you believe in? Is the the God you believe in this passive bystander of all that's going on? Is Is the God you believe in one who created all things and then kind of distanced himself from all that's happening and disengages from the world? Is that the God you believe in? What is the God you believe in? Ten Christian counselors were asked, If you could give your clients, if you could give your clients one thing to help them feel better, what would it be? After batting around several options, they all agreed I would give them a correct view of God. Now, why would a correct view of God based on a responsible study of the Bible make any difference in a person's life? Well, the answers to that go beyond my scope of purposes this morning. But suffice it to say, it changes my perception of the events that are going on. Now, after working through 10 chapters in the book of Daniel, it should be clear by now that a thematic thread that runs through it all is that God is in control. And to the extent we believe, and that's our belief of God, and we believe that God is in control, and if we embrace it daily, it will make a difference in our lives and in our being a bright spot in a dark world. It's possible to go through the times we're living in and honestly say, I've never felt better. Why? Our God who's in control of history is in control of the future. Well, this morning we look behind to see such a detailed uh, prophetic outworking of what has taken place in the drama of world history. 
And that's where, that's what's there in Daniel chapter 11. And I'd invite you, as I always do, to turn there in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. It always goes better if you follow along. Daniel chapter 11. And not only will we look behind and acknowledge that God is in control of history, we can look ahead with confidence knowing that God is in control of what lies ahead, not only on the world history stage, but also over my life. And that should reassure you, church. God's got this. I mean, I don't know how many different ways to say that. A look behind should encourage us as we look ahead. Well, Daniel chapter 11 this morning, Daniel chapter 11 this morning, and I don't know if you read ahead and, and read Daniel chapter 11, if you did, you know, blessings to you, really, that you, you went through Daniel chapter 11. And I think I said to you, when we are looking at uh, the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, I think I said then that that was the most difficult passage in Daniel to preach on. I've changed my answer. That was before I spent time in preparation of Daniel chapter 11. Now, I want to give you a disclaimer right up front. I know you don't want to hear a preacher say that, but I, I, here's my disclaimer. I am not going to delve into all the details. I know that's going to disappoint some of you, but I believe it's in everyone's best interest to look at this chapter from 30,000 feet. You can do the research yourself. Alistair Begg shared a personal experience uh, of one of his art teachers in school and the line that that teacher would use. And it got me thinking about my shop teacher. I am pretty sure that I sent my shop teacher into early retirement, if not to an early grave. I hope not. I mean, I, I, you, I've told you this before. I, I'm, I'm not very handy and I'm not mechanically inclined whatsoever. I, have, I had no clue what I was doing in shop. I had no business being there, but it was mandatory that everybody took it. So I, I took it, and, and the, the poor shop teacher, he had no patience with me. Can't blame him. And I'd come to him looking for some help on some project or, or some tool. And I'd come and say, yeah, I need some help. And he'd say this, I'll get you started, Brian, but I'm not going to do it all for you. <laughs> That's my approach to Daniel chapter 11. I will get you started, but I'm not going to do all of it for you. All right, you got to do some of it on your own. Now, I'm dividing this material into two sections. It's a look behind, where we're going to spend most of our time, and then a look ahead. Bear with me as we go through this. A look behind, a look behind. Now, we left off last week with Daniel getting a look behind the scenes on the ongoing conflict that's going on in the unseen world that was directly related to what was happening on the ground. And I want to remind you of the backdrop to chapters 10 through 12, which really forms one unit. After 70 years in captivity, the, the people of Israel, the exiles, can now return to their homeland in Jerusalem. What is surprising, however, is that less than half of the people living in Babylon at that time actually leave and go back to their home. Daniel Likely was expecting that all the land of Israel would be restored, that the temple would be rebuilt, and life uh, would return to normal after 70 years of living in a foreign land. But it didn't happen. 
And as we saw last week, it drove Daniel to pray and fast for three weeks. And his prayer might have been on the lines of, why God? Why, why, why hasn't this worked out the way I thought it would work out? Why, is, why isn't the temple rebuilt? Why haven't all the people returned? Well, in God's answer to that prayer, it was delayed, remember? And, and it was delayed for a reason. It was because of this conflict going on between a holy angel and a fallen angel who's out to uh, annihilate the people of God. Well, the answer finally comes to Daniel, and when it comes, it's actually worse than he thought. He thought the 70 years of purging was the end of God's discipline. But this revelation given to Daniel that fills chapter 11 and goes into chapter 12 is the people of God would continue to be oppressed. All right, with that, chapter 11, verse 2. Verse 1 really belongs to the section prior, but verse 2 of Daniel chapter 11. The angel's still speaking to Daniel. The angel says, now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, then a fourth who'll be far richer than all the others, and when he's gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Verse 3. Then, after that, a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, verse 4 says, his empire will be broken up, parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, if you were Daniel, a takeaway right now would be that through the Persian empire, the one he's living in now, and the Greek empire to come, the people of Israel will continue to be oppressed. That's what his, his mind would go. And the suffering for his people doesn't end there. You come to verse 5. All the way down to verse 20. And by the way, it covers around 200 years. 200 years of constant conflict between the north and the south. North and south of what? Well, very important here to note that these prophecies are related to the nation Israel. They are at the center of it all. So south of Israel uh, would have been Egypt. And north of Israel would be Syria. Sandwiched in the middle of this conflict is Israel. They are feeling the brunt of it all. Now go down to verse 16 with me to see this. Verse 16. The invader, king of the north, will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He'll establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. The beautiful land is what? The land of Israel. Well, who is the invader here? Who's the he that's mentioned? Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment. But what I do want us to notice at this point is that as mighty as this ruler is, this invader is, there comes another one stronger. Folks, that's always the case. What's said of this invader? Who does as he pleases? Look at verse 19. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Okay? His successor comes in. What's to say of his successor? Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Another one bites the dust. I mean, that's what happens over and over again. All powerful rulers will only discover one more powerful. Go down to verse, back to verse 5. We see it there. The king of the south 
will become strong, but one of his commanders will be even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. All these superpowers, where are they now? There's a finitude written into them. There's a finitude written into them. See verse, you don't have to turn there, but verse 24, and verse says, but only for time. Verse 27, only for a little while. Verse 29, time appointed. Verse 35, the appointed time. See, it is God who raises up. It is God who puts down. Kingdoms come and go. Their refrain may be, we are the champions. And we'll keep on fighting till the end for we are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers because we are the champions of the world. Only for an appointed time. Right? You, you think back and go back away. Back there. Who won that year? I don't really remember. They were champions then. They were bragging all the cha- This is what happens to rulers. They come and they go. As a, as a child, my first trips into Fenway Park to watch the Boston Red Sox where the smells, uh, it was filled with just smells and sights and sounds. And one of which would be a man yelling even before you got into the gate, programs, get your programs. And in my innocence, as a young child, I'd reach out to take one of those programs and the adult that was with me would pull my hand down and say, they aren't free, you have to pay for those. I was pretty disappointed. Then as you walked into the stadium and and sat down, rather than today, all the people looking down, have their heads down looking at their phones, people would be looking down at their programs. I felt pretty cheated. I didn't have one. Because in those programs, there were tons of ads, of course, but there were also player profiles. And in those days, and I remember doing this when I finally could get a program, in those days, there was even a place where you could write down the starting lineup and record what each batter did throughout the game. I love that. Good old days. See, these programs were very useful, not only to cover your head during a rainstorm or to fold up to yell through it at the umpire, but as the sellers would claim, you can't tell the players without the program. Okay? In Daniel chapter 11, in case you're wondering where I'm going with that one, It's a challenge to tell the players from one another. And even though Daniel doesn't mention any names, there are sufficient descriptions given for us that there's agreement among most historians and Bible scholars. And so I want to give you a list of key players of God's program that are mentioned here in verses 2 through 35. And they all begin with the letter A. That will help you. The key figure back in verse 2, in which it says, who will be far richer than all the others, that's Ahasuerus, or better known as Xerxes. I like to go with that one. It's easier to say, but I needed an A. <laughs> no, that's really his name, Ahasuerus. He was, by the way, he was a king in the time of Esther, Xerxes. Well, uh, as a Eurus, Xerxes, he was responsible for leading a major surprise attack on Greece, and the Greeks never forgot it. And so when Alexander the Great from Greece, 150 years later came along, our next key player, Alexander the Great, 
He's referred to as a mighty king in verse 3. He avenges for what happened earlier to Greece by the Persians and he seizes the entire Persian empire and has complete control over it. As we've seen in our study, Alexander the Great stands out as one of the most remarkable military leaders ever. Go to your history books and read some of this stuff. Some have noted that he changed the course of history more than any other ruler, even in his short lifespan, which I think he died at, at 33. His kingdom was then at 33. It was broken off into four parts, it tells us here, too. And so the next key player that came out from Alexander's the Great's kingdom was Antiochus the Great. You know, we're now I'm the champion. Antiochus the Great, king of the north, led this surprise attack on Egypt, and out of nowhere, it seemed, a multitude of great forces, history tells us, as many as 75,000 soldiers attacked the south and stomped right through the land of Israel to get on south's border. In verse 11, notice it says, verse 11, the king of the south was moved with anger. Who could blame him? Suddenly, 75,000 soldiers show up at your border. Yeah, you'd be pretty ticked too. So the king of the south retaliates, which made Antiochus the Great even more angry. And verse 13 informs us, the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. And back and forth it goes. Oh yeah, I got one on you. Here we go. Now it's Antiochus the Great, that's the one spoken of in verse 16, that invader I referenced earlier, who turns his anger on the people of Israel. Now, there's something of interest that happens given to us in verse 17. Antiochus, being a smart man, he decides he's going to strengthen his power and he's going to keep Egypt on his side just so that he can kind of gain an advantage in. This is what he does. He has his daughter, Cleopatra, not the famous queen, Cleopatra. He has his daughter, Cleopatra, marry the king of Egypt. And he does that in order to have his daughter spy on the activity in the palace and then give him a strategic advantage. He uses his own daughter. His plan doesn't work. Know why? Cleopatra falls in love with the king. And she loves her husband, the king of Egypt, more than she loves her father, which is how it should be. And his whole plan just falls apart. Now, I read that and I go, really? Why is all this included? To show us how God knows history before it even happens. We mustn't forget all history is in God's control. This section speaks of marriages and murders, the rise and fall of leaders, down to the details. Someone suggested that as many as 100 specific predictions came true in these 35 verses. Who can tell us that? I mean, it's so specific in its details, it forces you to land in one of two places. You can believe, and some do, That this is all a record of history that Daniel or someone else wrote down after it all happened. Their presupposition is that no person could know what would take place in the future. Well, on that point, I would agree. No person can predict this. This is predictive prophecy that Daniel wrote down before it happened. How? 
It's all of God. It's all of God. And Daniel himself claims that he was an eyewitness to these things in the time of Babylon's history before it ever happened. He claims he's an eyewitness. Check it out. Chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 8, verses 1 and verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 2 and 22. Chapter 10, verse 7. He claims that he was there before it all happened. So either the writer of these things lied about who he was, or Daniel predicted the future in vivid detail. And if he lied about who he was, then why even study and believe anything else he wrote? The whole book is a joke. No, no, no. God speaks of this in advance. And he uses Daniel to write down the unfolding of God's program. And let's look at another key player in God's program. So eventually, Antiochus the Great... He's brought into conflict with Rome. And we're introduced to a description that matches Antiochus Epiphanes. Not super creative in the names here, but that's who it is. Antiochus Epiphanes, not to be confused with Antiochus the Great. We're introduced to our fourth key player in God's program, verse 21. Notice verse 21. He, Antiochus the Great, historians and Bible scholars would agree on this. The most. He, Antiochus the Great, will be succeeded by a contemptible or vile person who has not been given the honor of royalty. And so, through some political manipulation, Antiochus, Epiphanes, who wasn't the rightful heir to the throne, gains control as king of the north. And it tells us in verse 28, very interesting words here, it says, his heart, Antiochus Epiphanes' heart, will be set up against the holy covenants. Again, the middle of verse 30, he will vent his fury against the holy covenant. What's that talking about? It's referring to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Antiochus set out to demolish the faith of Israel. Verse 31 goes on, says of him, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice and they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus applies this to his future in Matthew 24. But do you see it? He hated the Jews and their temple that he did away with their sacrifices and replaced it with this monstrous statue of Zeus. He made heathen idolatry mandatory. Historians have noted that he would sacrifice pigs in the Jewish temple. And then he would force the Jewish priests to eat the pork. He was responsible for bitter persecutions of the Jewish people. And this vile ruler that was introduced to us back in chapter 8 of the little horn, spoken again here in chapter 11 to draw, I believe, to draw a parallel between the persecution under this man and the persecution under the future Antichrist. It's a foretaste of what would come during the great tribulation at the end of time. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was not really a big name as far as world history is concerned, but was of great importance in the history of God's people and the story of redemption. But this major crisis for the people of God, under the rule of Antiochus Epiphany, tested the loyalty of God's people. Now, if you got lost along the way, I perhaps wouldn't blame you, but I want us to see verse 32. 
This is key. It gets lost in this whole, all these details. Verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. Now get this. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Some are going to fall for his charisma and be deceived. But there will be some who resist him. Who are the ones who will resist him? Those who know their God. Do you know God? What's the God you believe in? Is it is the God you believe in the one who just comes along and he meets all your expectations? Is is the God you believe in only you know around only when you need him? No, no. Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you know him? Do you know him? And what are you doing to get to know him better? And how is what you believe about God preparing you before a crisis comes. You can't just wait for the crisis to come and say, oh, I'm going to start to know God now. You're asking for trouble. How will you hold up against opposition and suffering? It matters the God you believe in. I mean, how are you holding up in the day-to-day stuff? Under what situations for you is it hard to be a Christian? See, all that's written down for us prepares us for what is to come. All right, I need to get to the next heading, and I'm not taking as long on the second heading as the first, for which you are thankful, but it's a look ahead, a look ahead. Now, as we come to verse 36, I believe there's a gap of time of more than 2,000 years between verse 35 and verse 36. Again, I'm not going to do it all for you. I'll get you started. Now, some writers see this section in verses 36 through 44, just in all fairness, I need to tell you this. Some see that this section here, 36 through 45, as a restatement of the previous section of verses 21 through 35. It's a recapitulation of what we just learned about all those other kings, particularly Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't believe that's the case. Language used here seems to suggest this is all still in the future. That's where I land. For instance, verse 40 uses the phrase, at the time of the end. The end of verse 36 speaks of the time of the wrath. Time of wrath. Of this final ruler, the Antichrist. Our last A, our final player in all of God's program. It says that he will what? Exalt himself as God. And you know what? Antiochus Epiphanes, as bad as he was... And he was a type of the Antichrist, I believe. As arrogant as he was, he did not demand that people bow down and worship him, but that they bow down to worship his gods. You see, there are egomaniacs, and then there are egomaniacs. And the Antichrist is the epitome of arrogance. This final ruler will be all the evil power of Ahasuerus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great, and Antiochus Epiphanes combined, and more. All right, what else do we know of the one described here? I'm going to give it to you quickly. Verse 36 says he's going to act in self-will and self-interest. He's going to exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will blaspheme the true god. He's going to be successful, but for a limited God-appointed time. What has been determined must take place. In verse 37, it says he's going to be irreligious and godless. 
In verses 38 and 39, his confidence will be in his own military power. In verses 40 through 43, he's going to start out strong. He will gain victory initially. But what comes of the Antichrist? Look at verse 45. What comes of the Antichrist? What's come with every other ruler before him? It says he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Now get this. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. He doesn't go out in a blaze of glory. But with a whimper. Church, we mustn't panic. God's got this. <laughs> he does. I came across this quote, made me smile. Chad Bird, not only to make me smile, it's spot on. He says, we're not the church of, the, of Chicken Little, but church of Jesus Christ. We do not run around screaming, the sky's falling, the sky is falling. No, there's no panic in heaven. Over the chaos of this world reigns the King of Kings, Jesus the Resurrected, before whom every knee will eventually bow, whether they like it or not. Every governmental authority now, that's presidents, that's kings, that's prime ministers, you name it, they are all in lame duck administrations. Their time is ending. Church, put not your trust in politicians or parties or ballot boxes. Christ and his kingdom are everlasting. Amen. When Robinson Caruso's good man Friday asked him, why doesn't God destroy the devil? Robinson Crusoe gave him the right answer, the only answer, the great answer. He said, God will destroy him. Well, then I asked, why does God give this antichrist who's empowered by the devil any leash at all? Why allow this evil person any time at all on the stage of the drama of history? Well, there's something rather interesting and very lightening. If you go back to verses 33 and 35 that lead into this section. Verse 33. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Why does God allow suffering to the people of Israel, the apple of his eye? Verse 35 answers it. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. Why will Israel go through this oppression and suffering up until the time of Christ's return? It is all part of God bringing Israel to himself, a remnant. You see, when God wants to accomplish his purposes, he may choose to use the most unlikely people, even evil people. God's not through with Israel. God's not through with you. And these words through Daniel were a reminder that there was indeed a future and a hope for the people of God. What does all this have to do with us? Well, Jesus, in speaking of future things in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, Jesus says, speaking of future things, he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. We do not need to be weighed down 
for the anxiety about the future. I have. We don't need to be. To look behind, to see that God was in control of it all, down to the vivid details, gives us assurance in looking ahead that God's got this. That's the takeaway. Let me give it to you again. To look behind, to see that God was in control of it all, down to the vivid details, gives us assurance in looking ahead that God's got this. We can trust his plan. God can predict history because he controls it. That's true for Israel. and That is true for our lives. And, and, and if he can handle the big stuff, he can handle the little stuff in my life. I'm not minimizing what you're going through. It might be big stuff to you. That, I get that. Big stuff to me, sure. God can handle the world stage and world history and all where it's going. He can handle what's going on in my life. Trust Christ in the midst of our problems. God can handle whatever it is that you are going through. Can. Never thought you'd get that out of Daniel chapter 11. It's there. I'm not making it up. On January 12, 2010, a massive and devastating earthquake struck just outside Port-au-Prince, the capital city of Haiti. I'm sure you remember that. Countless buildings in the city collapsed and over 100,000 lives were lost. The people who had little now had nothing. Andy Crouch, who visited the city, says, That night with aftershocks rolling through the ground, almost all the residents of the city and the surrounding countryside stayed outside, torn with grief and fear. There was a segment on national public radio, not a Christian broadcast, national public, public radio said this, for the Western Hemisphere's poorest country, the earthquake that hit Haiti in January 2010 was an especially cruel blow. Get this. Despite this, it says, it's hard to find a Haitian who doesn't profess a belief in a loving God. I go through far less than they did. Andy Crouch went on to say, when you've lost everything and you still have your song, you know God. All over the hills of Haiti, he says, those first terrible nights under the starlit sky, the voices of the people of Haiti amidst their grief and loss, they sang. <laughs> How is that possible? What is the God you believe in. Is he a bystander to all of this and to your life? Or is he the one who, who, who's in control, sovereignly guiding it? Where is God in all this mess? <laughs> well, whatever you're facing, God's got this. To look behind, to see that God was in control of it all down to the vivid details, gives assurance in looking ahead. That God's got this. He's got this. Let's pray. God, whatever it is today, that's just getting us all worked up and there's plenty on that list to choose from. Some perhaps of our own doing, some things that are happening in our personal lives, but also the other things going on in the world. I pray, God, that we can take all of that and, and, and honestly, genuinely, give that to you. 
I'm out of, I, I have no control over it, but you do. And when we, when we stop and think about some of the stuff going on in our lives, I pray, God, that we can take that step back and go, God is sovereign. You have this. That so much of it is just teaching us how to trust more in you. So bring us to that place. Certainly will be reminded of that as we sing this final song this morning. May we carry this song and these words in our heart this week. And what you wrote for us here in Daniel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.